So the hottest topic and the hottest field in America right now is fairness slash bias, algorithmic fairness slash algorithmic bias. How to make algorithms more fair to people or how to mitigate bias and make them less unfair. So I'm going to assume when you say equality, you mean that. See you shaking your head? Yes. Okay, cool. I have like talks about this. I talk about this a lot. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Artists of Data Science podcast, the only self-development podcast for data scientists. You're going to learn from and be inspired by the people, ideas, and conversations that will encourage creativity and innovation in yourself so that you can do the same for others. I also host Open Office Hours. You can register to attend by going to bitly.com forward slash A-D-S-O-H. I look forward to seeing you all there. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave a five-star review. Our guest today is a data scientist specializing in deep learning, natural language processing, predictive analytics, and social good initiatives. She's a lead data scientist and analytics manager at Booz Allen Hamilton, where she helps her stakeholders cut through the clutter to make better decisions and leads a team that transforms complex problems into simple solutions. She's also a member of GLOBE. Booz Allen's LGBTQIA Forum and the African American Forum. She also serves as a teaching assistant at General Assembly and a data advisor for the National Urban League. As part of the Women in Data Science organization, she serves as the chair of the community service branch, connecting data science capabilities to social impact initiatives. For her contributions to data science and social good, she's been awarded the 2020 Women of Color in STEM All-Star Award, the 2019 DC Femtech Award, and the 2017 Prince George County's Maryland 40 Under 40 Honoree. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, a woman who is committed to creating equity with algorithms, Cian. Lewis, Cian, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today. I really, really appreciate you coming on to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Oh, you make me sound really fancy. Thanks. Oh, you definitely are. <laughs> you definitely are. <laughs> so, Cian, let's uh, let's learn a little bit more about you before you dig into all the data science boring stuff. <laughs> let's learn. Let's learn about uh, where you grew up and what was it like there. Well, I grew up in many places. I have. Oh, I like to call it, I had a true African experience. So I was born originally in Nottingham, England. Um, I got there because my parents were there. They were both immigrants from their respective countries. My dad's from Sierra Leone, from Trinidad, in the Caribbean. They both left their countries, wound up in, in jolly old England, and I was born there. Lived there for a few years, and then I went to live in Trinidad for a few years in the Caribbean. It was wonderful and great. And then came to this fine nation um, and have been here ever since. Been in the D.C. area 
ever since. Yeah. And growing up for me, it was like uh, one floating party, I would say. Um, <laughs> you know, when you're an immigrant, and I, 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 I am... I am an immigrant, right? I'm an immigrant from England. I don't have the typical immigrant story. Um, when you're an immigrant, you find and you form these social enclaves wherever you are um, with people who are similar to you or from similar countries as you. You form tight-knit communities. It really helps with your ability to form friendships with people of all kinds of backgrounds. Um, so I really had a very cosmopolitan upbringing, exposed to a lot of different things. And I'm an only child, which is unusual in both of my parents' cultures. So being an only child, um, I got to be around the adults. I was, was really very much a grown-up um, when I was younger. And I got exposed to great lectures and great museums and um, great travel adventures. So I, I, had a, I had a really cool upbringing. That's so freaking cool. So like Nottingham, if, I, if memory serves me correct, isn't there like a forest there? There is, yes. And isn't that the same forest? Yes. where Robin Hood is from. You are correct, sir. Did you ever go looking for him in the forest? I did not go looking for him in Sherwood Forest. Sherwood I was not forest. interested in the forest. When you are from Nottingham, it's all you hear about. Therefore, no interest. That's crazy. It's always interesting hearing the stories from, from various immigrants that, that come to the States, right? So obviously, like my, I'm, I'm an immigrant too, right? Like my parents were not born in the States. I was, I was born in the States. So I guess first generation, my parents are mom is from Fiji. Dad is from India, um, but both like, you know, ethnically Punjabi. And it, it's always cool to kind of see the similarities between the immigrant stories. So with your parents, did they give you the option of being either a lawyer, doctor or <laughs> failure? That is correct. Yes. Correct. Anything. In my family, actually, my mom is a nurse, my dad is a research scientist. So for us, it, it was just doctor or failure. Uh, I didn't sure have any other choice. No, no second option. You know what? I think for Indian people, for sure, like that, there is becoming a third option. That third option is data scientist. You could be either a lawyer, doctor, data scientist, or failure. Yeah, oh, it's I'm, you. Yeah, I'm, we're, we're evolving. We're evolving our our notions of success, that is for sure. So what kind of kid were you in high school? I was, so if you hear me tell it, I was asking my friends this the other day. So my perception of myself was being a very quiet, reserved uh, dweeb who had a very terrible sense of fashion and a very great interest in reading. Uh, if you hear my friends tell it, I was extremely funny, very outgoing, um, was in all the clubs, did all the things. Um, I just felt awkward all the time. I and mean, I spent a lot of my time studying. I loved school, which was kind of unusual around the people. I love school. I love going to school. I like doing homework. I like the whole nine. I did all the AP classes. I, I just enjoyed it. But if I look back, if I look through pictures, I appear to be a pretty fun person. So that's that's pretty interesting. Like, I mean, I, I like your sense of fashion now. You can't People can't see on the podcast, but she's got this really cool uh, polka dot top blouse it's really really cool i like that so anyways uh <laughs> what, what did what did you think your future was going to look like in in high school well as i told you i only had the one option mm -hmm. well i had the two doctor or failure so i was very much going to be a doctor you know I, I did the whole ap biology ap chemistry thing born and bred and raised and directed to be a doctor 
Um, it's all I thought about. I wanted to be a cardiothoracic surgeon, very specific kind of doctor. I knew how long it would take me. I knew the schools I would go to. So that was, that's, that's all I thought about. That's, that's the only thing I saw for myself. So what was the journey like then that took you from that specific, really specific vision into data science? Well, I explored the second option. So I had the option of being a doctor and then I explored failure, right? I explored failure for many years. You know, I, I went to grad school. I was terrible at it. I didn't want to be there. And I actually learned that I had no interest in actually anything healthcare related, like that required direct service on people. So I quit after great anguish, great terror. And I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do with my life? And so I spent the next, um, I don't know, probably 20 minutes. Like, what am I, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? So at the time I was in Baltimore, I was in grad school in Baltimore, and um, you know, just just doing terribly at it. And there were a bunch of nurses on strike at the hospital that I was going to school at. And I saw a friend from college leading a picket line. And I was like, Hey Don, what are you up to? She's like, Oh yeah, the nurses are underpaid and they're, you know, mandatory send scheduling, stuff like that. And I recall my mom growing up, she had to work these ridiculous shifts at the drop of a dime. And I always thought that that, that sucked. Okay? So I began talking with her. I went to one of these meetings. And then uh, she worked for the Service Employees International Union. And then she was like, hey, you're passionate. And you get to go into this building without anybody harassing you. Why don't you join us? And I was like, all right. And so I began my journey into labor organizing. Um, I did that for a while, um, and from there, I, because of my heavy love for mathematics, um, I converted that into political organizing, quote unquote organizing, where because I had the ability to make predictions on people's previous voting history from the voter file and such, no one around me was doing it, um, and then from that. I parlayed that into being a political director of a labor union, um, being a lobbyist, uh, and then beginning my own political data firm from there, where I worked on a variety of political campaigns, really, really big ones, really, really small ones. Um, I became the vote whisperer right, when it came to um, predictive analytics and in politics. Um, and then from there, I really leaned into data science as it became a thing. It wasn't just me making predictions. It became like a quasi-formalized um, line of work. And I was like, oh, okay, I should go and do this. I should go and be a data scientist because I have been all these years. I just didn't know it was called that. Um, and so I um, went to a boot camp to learn more about deep learning specifically. And then after that, and off to the races in data science. How does that work? Like, how, how do you use predictive analytics for like votes and, and vote counting and vote whispering? Yeah, explain that a little bit to me. Yeah. And just for your audience, in case we're, we're doing this podcast um, one week and one day after the general election in November 2020, uh, the historic election between. Joe Biden and uh, Donald J. Trump. We still have a. <laughs> they still they're still counting votes. Um, 
So essentially, you can use predictive analytics. Um, you can build a bunch of models doing just about anything in politics. And I began doing it. We just did turnout models, you know, trying to just predict how many people are going to show up to vote, from what districts they're going to come from, um, and what can we do to change the amount of people that will turn out, like actually vote by election day. That's pretty basic, right? That's just based on people's voting history in the past, along with any demographic change of, of, a, of a locale, along with um, individual voter demographics, and along with the results of any surveys that they took along the way, um, where they get scored according to their enthusiasm for a candidate and their enthusiasm for turning out. So you have all those elements, you make predictions. Simple. Um, when I began doing it, I began making predictions for other things, like how much money are we actually going to need to um, raise and spend in order to make that turnout happen? Where is the best place um, to send pieces of mail? And what is, what is the effect of that mail going to be, um, according to the stats, you know, um, to improve how many people are going to turn out on election day? Um, where are the best places, if it's a national race, where are the best places to buy ads that are going to have the largest effect? Um, where are the best places to find new donors? Where are the best places to um, persuade people who are on the fence or even just find them? There are millions, there's so many different ways that you can use uh, predictive analytics in politics. It's interesting because if you, if you abstract away like the the just the specifics of you know your context and you can take that same story and maybe move it to like a retail space where now instead of predicting who is going to come and vote you're predicting when the next customer is going to come how much you're going to spend things like that so that's, that's, that's very really, very it's very very close to marketing analytics so what, what do you love most about being a data scientist oh nowadays i love you know what i love I love that people think that we are magical wizards that control the world. And then I get to burst people's bubbles and say that we're not magical wizards that control the world. Why are you? <laughs> why are you? Why are you? Let them think that. Okay. Um, I, love, I love data science because it means everything and it means nothing. So, you know, the term is thrown around so, so often. It doesn't really have any meaning anymore. But I love that people are more and more data-oriented. Well, they really are, is they're more and more metric-oriented, right? They're looking for hard things to judge whether or not something is good or bad. That's good for people like me. That's good in general. Having a more black and white situation uh, for most things is nice. I also love data science because I blink and something new has come out that has fundamentally changed the way I did things. Literally, every single day, there's something new. There's a new package. There's a new technique. There's a new finding. There's a new paper that comes out. And I get to rethink what I learned in school. I get to rethink what I've done practically over the years. And I love that. Always on my toes. Do you consider data science, machine learning to be an art or purely a hard science? And why? Ooh, I'm going to give you the most data science answer ever, which is it depends. Right, <laughs> it depends. Is like the answer to everything. That that one hundred percent, yes. Yeah. So when it comes to like for things like marketing analytics, and you know, if if I were um, working at a Silicon Valley firm, I would say to you, absolutely science. Right. Literally, every decision that they make is metric based, is data driven, is you know, you do an algorithm to figure out if this thing works or not, 
you know, you tweak a current algorithm, everything, everything is science, right? If you ask somebody in politics, they'll say, well, it's more art than science. You know, you can't really predict how many people are going to come out. You just can't because you don't have a popul you don't have an actual population um, to derive a sample of. This is something that's wishful and happening in the future, right? So it has to be art inherently. It cannot be science, right? Because who's showing up to vote in 2024 is imaginary. So for me, the answer is uh, it depends. So I currently work at Booz Island and I work in public service, right? And I work on um, improving our active duty military healthcare system. We'll talk about that in a second. And I'm, I work on very, very concrete things. And I also work on very imaginary things as well. What could happen, right? If this happens, that might happen. So I spend a lot of time in, in both realms, in art and in science. I follow Seth Godin. I'm not sure if you um, uh, follow him as well, but he posted one of his, uh, just his blogs are amazing. You get them every day in the mail. And he posted one about the difference between science and art. And it really, really resonated with me. And it was, if it can't be replicated, well, so let me restate that. If you can't replicate the work and to get the same outcome, then it's not science. Yeah. If you can replicate the work and get the same outcome, it's not art. So I thought that kind of made me think a little bit because like when it's a science and I lay out my procedure for you and say these are all my steps, then you should be able to do all the same steps and get the same result. That's kind of like the science part of it. But the art part is, okay, I'm going to solve this problem with my specific knowledge, with what I know, you're going to solve this problem with your knowledge, what you know. And that's the artistic part of it is the actual way we problem, like solve the problem. Yeah, I agree. What role do you think being creative and curious plays in being successful as a data scientist? Oh, that's a good question. It depends. <laughs> so, you know, being curious is incredibly important in general in any kind of quasi-science-based field, and that's what data science is right now. It's not a hard It is a hard science, but it really isn't. You can argue about that from, from now until the cows come home. Being curious is really important, um, but being curious can also be a detriment, right? Because often as a data scientist, you are hired to solve a very specific problem. And the problems are usually in three categories. How are you going to increase usage of something, right? How are you going to increase revenue, right? Or how are you going to increase engagement on something? That's, that's really it, right? And if your curiosity takes you outside of any of those realms, then it's a detriment, right? Because then you're not actually working to, you're not optimizing the problem at hand. You're, you're, you're off in another place that is um, that may or may not be helpful. Not suboptimal, as they, they would call it. So that's that's the case, you know, it's like a U-curve, right? Curiosity is a great, great thing, and then too much of it is not so. Um, the same thing with creativity. So I am, um, I am a highly creative person. I call myself the fashionista Pythonista, right? <laughs> I love my fashion, that I love my Python. I do. I'm very creative. Um, you know, personally, I love art. Um, and when it comes to um, finding really interesting data to enhance the data that I currently have, very creative about that. Um, I'm also very creative in presenting data, right? Because I guess because of my political background, I'm very good at saying, hey, this is what we did, this is what we found, and convincing clients or whomever that 
the way to go is this, right? This is the strategy that we should be going forward. It's data-based, these are fine. Um, but then, just like the, again, just like curiosity, creativity, if creativity um, often, I would say, leads to results that can't be replicated, right? Because um, you can document as many things as you want when you write out a data, when you uh, do a, a model, but the creativity involved is never documented. You, literally, people cannot replicate what you do. Like, you, you know, you're in, it's at 2, 2 a.m. in the morning and you say to yourself, oh my gosh, I bet if I go to the EEOC and find this data set and combine it with that one and find just this one column and multiply them together and make this interaction term, that'll enhance my current data set. Yes, perfect. Nobody ever writes that down. <laughs> Right. So it's hard to replicate. So again, creativity is great until it's not. I thought I was the only one that dreams data science. <laughs> no, no, you're not. So what is a model anyways? And, and why is it that we even build them in the first place? You know, I am um, going to take a moment to disambiguate, which means a fancy way of saying to clarify something. Because uh, um, what I'm, I have a lot of different side jobs that are all data science based. One of my side jobs is being a teaching assistant at General Assembly, which is a boot camp for, for folks to become um, data scientists in a few weeks. <clears throat> it's a great thing. Um, and I get to hear um, students say, oh, my model isn't working well, or my, my model isn't working right. And they keep using the word model and algorithm interchangeably. I hear it in the real world all the time. So I'm just going to say what a model is. I'm going to say what an algorithm is to answer your question, right? So a model is basically, a model represents what you have learned by running an algorithm, right? And it's a thing, a model is a thing that's that it's saved after you've done your machine learning, right? Um, after you run an algorithm on training data, right? Then you have a representation of um, outputs. That is a model. An algorithm, just so you know, is like a specified set of rules and procedures that you follow mathematical rules that you follow to solve a problem. So algorithms are things like random forest and linear regression, stuff like that. Those are not models, right? When you run the algorithm over a set of data to create your um, predictions or whatever you want to do with it, right? That is a model. Um, and so basically, it's a snapshot of a moment in time. Um, it's a snapshot of, of a particular reality at that moment. That's all. So how can we use algorithms to build models with equality? And equality, like, you want to disambiguate that one for us, too? Well, yes, I was going to ask yes. you, what do you mean by equality? <laughs> what does it mean to you? Well, so the hottest topic and the hottest field in America right now is fairness slash bias, algorithmic fairness slash algorithmic bias. How to make algorithms more fair to people or how to mitigate bias and make them less unfair. So I'm going to assume you say equality, you mean that. See so you shaking your head, yes. Okay, cool. I have like talks about this. I talk about this a lot. This is one of my personal passions. That's why I brought it up. I was born to talk. I'll start with this. Number one, as you know, the data science person, garbage in, garbage out. If you have crappy data that you're putting into your model, then you're going to get crappy results. The thing is, is that when you are a data scientist and you have the pressures of working in the three things, you know, growth, uh, revenue, or um, engagement, often folks just don't even look at their data. They're just like, hey, this is the data and that's it. Let me find ways to make this data set better so that I can make a better um, model. That's really it. 
But in order to build algorithms, I'm sorry, to build models, right, that are more equitable, right, that promote equality, let's call it just, let's just call it fairness, right, because people are going to, I know I'm going to get, uh, people are going to harass me after talking about this. In order to do that, you actually have to stop and look at your data, like stop and look at your data, right? And you have to look at your data and you have to do it and you have to look at things like, are there any attributes in here that are quote unquote protected, part of the protected classes? Is there anything about age or race or gender um, or even uh, income in here, right? And if there are, we have to treat them a certain way. And if they aren't, then we have to look at things that correlate to the protected classes. So in this part of the world that I live in, I live in Washington, D.C., in my part of the world, things like race very much correlate to the part of the city that you live in, right? The, not necessarily the zip code, but the ward. If, if in D.C., if you live in Ward 7 or 8, highly likely to be African-American. If you're living in Ward uh, 6, not so much, right? So you have to look and see what also correlates with these protected classes. People rarely do this. People say, listen, look, we took race out of the data set. We took out gender, okay? Done now, finished, done all the things it's supposed to. No, you have to look at what correlates with those things as well. And you don't necessarily have to take them out of your data set. Um, what you can do is treat these uh, protected attributes a certain way. So yes, you wanna keep your model, you wanna keep your data untouched. You wanna run your algorithm to create a model first. And then you want to see, you want to make sure that you can actually find a measurable difference between the outcomes of a protected class that's privileged, and a, I'm sorry, a protected attribute that's privileged, and one that's underprivileged. So let's take, um, let's take an, uh, a less inflammatory one. Let's take age, right? Let's say you leave age into your data set and you, you know, you, when your algorithm, you get your model, and then you, you find that people over a certain age have outcomes that are between, and it's a random number, between one and three. And then people that are under a certain age have outcomes that are between seven and 10, right? A stark difference between them. So you wanna average, or you wanna look at the uh, difference between the outcomes of these uh, classes um, to see, I'm sorry, these unprivileged or privileged um, groups within a protective attribute. Uh, to see the mean difference, right? It can. It doesn't even have to be the mean difference. It could be the um, odds difference. You have to see if there is a difference in your prediction, and there usually is. There usually is. If you actually look for it. So now that you can actually quantify that there are different outcomes for people over a certain age and then people under a certain age, then you have actually seen bias. You have literally recorded that there is bias in this data set. And once you do that, you can set about the fun task of mitigating it, right? And there are a bunch of ways you can go about doing that. You can mitigate bias by just re-weighting re um, your different classes, you know, adding more weight to this class than the other one so that there's no difference in the outcome. You can, um, you can add fair, there's like a million different fairness um, uh, algorithms that you can run across your data as well to, can, to uh, output fair outcomes for folks. There's a lot of things. 
as long as you wind up in this place, the place you want to wind up is when you look at your protected class, you look at age, and you look at people over a certain age and people under a certain age, the difference between their outcomes should be zero, right? That is all you're trying to do. You can get there in a million different ways, but it really matters that you actually have to take a moment to look and quantify the barrier bias, right, and then mitigate it. Or, uh, 50 million different tactics. There was like a fairness algorithm that that our, our audience should go brush up on. Which one would you recommend that they go brush up on? It depends. <laughs> it depends on your data set. Um, I actually would say you, you you won't know until you try them all. So there's a really cool website you should go to to find. Um, they have really cool like Jupyter notebooks, tutorials, and all the different algorithms you can use, and all of the pre-processing techniques you can use to like either reweight or or even find um, imbalanced classes. Uh, go to AI360. It's IBM site where they have they literally show you a tutorial on what um, bias actually looks like mathematically, all the different bias metrics that you can um, uh, solve for. And they also give you Jupyter notebooks on how to write out your own algorithms or use their own package algorithms to uh, mitigate bias. I'll definitely include that in the show notes. Thank you so much. I've never actually heard of that website, so that's very, very useful. Thank you. You're welcome. So let's talk about, I guess, when we're when we're building models, right? Sometimes people will just take raw data set and they will just try to fit a model to it. They don't really think about feature engineering or building out that complexity in the data set. Do you have any tips that you could share with our audience so that we can be more thoughtful uh, with our feature engineering? And maybe we can talk about within the context of the it's the type of data that you work with where it's actually affecting, I want to say actually affecting humans, I guess. But I guess you kind of know what I mean, like social social data. Is that the right word for it? Thoughtful feature engineer. Well, number one feature, I just talked about, you know, you want to do an error analysis between, you know, different different groups in your data set to make sure that, that at the very least your error is consistent between groups, right? Then, um, you know, feature engineering is very, it's very, um, I have a checklist. I'm going to tell you what my checklist is, okay? All right. So the first thing I do is I look at any indicator variables. Um, and I... Try and figure out if there are, if there are any uh, thresholds. I try to figure out if I can take the variables that I have and group them or bin them. You know, um, I the first thing I do actually before I even do anything, and I've been doing this for years. The first thing I do when I get a data set is that I plot every single thing that I can. I want to see how my data are distributed. I want to see how each individual variable is distributed. I want to see if it's normal, if it's skewed, if it's, you know, high ketosis, how it is, right? Um, that really determines how I'm going to treat it. Um, it also determines how I'm going to engineer features or not. I want to see if my data set is sparse or not, if there's a whole bunch of zeros and a whole bunch of nulls. I, I'm going to deal with that a different way. And I also want to plot it because I want to see how the outliers are. One, if there are any. Two, if there are some, if there are a lot of them, you know, how that's pulling my distribution in a certain direction or not. So if there are a bunch of zeros and such, I have to decide how I'm going to impute missing data, right? Um, am I going to impute it at all? If I am, what is what imputation technique should I use? This is a way to talk about this. Let me just say, just going to take a moment. You know, in politics, there's a practice I don't agree with. I'm just going to say that it's a lot of practice that if there's a missing thing, you just fill it in with the mean. It hurts my heart. 
hurts me. <laughs> it hurts me so much. Um, but they fill it in with the mean because, you know, it's a lot of survey data. It's a Likert scale, between, you know, between zero and five, you know, so three is neutral. You just fill it in with the three, essentially. Hurts me. Hurts, right? Um, I prefer to mathematically impute missing data um, if I have the computational power to do so. Um, a lot of people use mice. You know, they use, um, you know, chain equations to figure out what the next, um, what's, what the estimated value is for a missing thing. So decide if you want to do that or if you just want to drop them. Right, you want to drop missing data. If you decide to drop, you just have to make sure that you know the reason why you plot is that you want to see after you drop that your distribution hasn't changed significantly, that your variance hasn't changed. All right, then you have to decide what you want to do with outliers. You want to keep them in, leave them out. Um, uh, a lot of the time, we scale or standardize because of the outliers. You want to bring them in so it doesn't throw off your predictions, throw your um, algorithm off. Um, so again, you just decide what you want to do with the outliers. Then, you know, I want to um, often, if the, especially if the data is really big, maybe I just want to, you know, uh, put stuff into buckets, you know, bin it out so that my algorithm has an easier time of reading the bin instead of the individual numbers in between. Uh, sometimes, you know, I want to do some transform. Maybe I want to do a log transform. It just turns out better, right? Um, often, this is my life. I don't know about your life. Often it's a bunch of random categorical stuff in my data set, a bunch of random words. And, you know, my algorithms can only take numbers, right? And so I have to convert the words into numbers. Uh, and I have to decide how I want to do that. Do I want to just map it? You know, every time I see the word man, that's a, that's a one. And every time I see the word woman, that's a two, right? Or do I want to create um, dummy variables, uh, do one hot encoding where it would be a one or a zero or a zero or one um, for a man versus a woman. I've learned this the hard way, just a little tidbit. If you're going to create dummy variables or do one hot coding, um, do that after. Please do that after you have grouped your sparse, your sparsity in your um, data set. So it's always good. You know, the data set has a bunch of zeros in the column. You want to group them, smush them together in bins. Uh, do that. So when you're dummies after you've done that. Um, sometimes you want to split a feature. You know, you might want to say all the people with age, you know, age 21 and younger, you want to create a new column that just says that just 21 and younger, and, and then that's it. And then, you know, if you're doing time series and stuff, you want to extract dates and make sure that the dates are in the right format for you. So those, those are the good things to do for feature engineering. What's up, artists? I would love to hear from you. Feel free to send me an email to theartistsofdatascience at gmail.com. Let me know what you love about the show. Let me know what you don't love about the show. And let me know what you would like to see in the future. I absolutely would love to hear from you. I've also got open office hours that I will be hosting. And you can register by going to bit.ly com forward slash a d s o h i look forward to hearing from you all and i look forward to seeing you in the office hours let's get back to the episode thanks for sharing that like you know i've never gotten much of a chance to work with survey data when i was a biostatistician once upon a time a couple of times here and there i did work with like likert scale data but never had much of an opportunity to work with survey data. Is that something that you find yourself having to work with quite frequently? Not so much anymore. In politics, all the time. Oh my gosh, mm -hmm. yes. But 
uh, not so much anymore. Yeah. If somebody wanted to do like a project that involved survey data, do you have any resources for them to go look into to get like survey data publicly? Hmm. Data.world has a bunch of uh, really cool surveys that you can find. And then, can't remember it right now, there's a newsletter that has survey data. It'll come to me in a few minutes. Okay. Yeah, definitely add data.world into the, the show notes. So I think something that doesn't get nearly enough coverage in any book or tutorial that I've come across is what to do once the model has been shipped into production, right? So once we fit a model, ship it, does our work stop there as a data scientist? No, <laughs> absolutely. When you're becoming a data scientist, you know, you build a model and you're yeah, 90% accuracy and you're done. And you don't get to learn this very hard lesson that models degrade over time. They don't um, stay as accurate as they were at the moment that you ran them on your little laptop, right? And certainly models behave differently um, if depending on how the data even comes in. So no, your work is not done. Your work is just done, actually. Uh, you will be spending a, a great deal of your time tweaking the algorithm, trying to find... Um, trying to find the things that are throwing your algorithm off, um, redoing your algorithm to deal with degradation, um, sometimes running um, survival analysis on, like a, a side, on a side, running survival analyses on either your model or survival analysis on the people that are in your model um, to see um, when they're going to quote unquote die off so that you have to create a new model. Sometimes you have to forget all the data from the past, scratch it because you just made something that this, this doesn't predict very well. No, your work is just, just, just beginning. So what are some things that you think we should monitor and track once it's deployed from like the, both from our perspective as data scientists and from like the business perspective? Well, you know, from the business perspective, all people really care about, they don't really, nobody, first of all, very few people care about your model, okay? Only you really care about your model. Everybody else cares about the outcome, right? So obviously tracking the outcome, because that's what everyone's eyes are on that. It's really important. Um, the second thing to track is, you know, sometimes your predictions, you know, as they're getting worse over time, they're getting worse. They're going in a particular direction. Um, and that's because you don't know why. You have to find out why. Um, you know, is it due to, you know, the data set itself changing? Is it due to the historical data, the old, old history data, not matching up with the most recent history data? You have to decide when the cutoff is, right? Um, so those are all the things that you should look at. Uh, you should also look at how often it's run. So the more you run a model, the worse it gets, right? The more you run it, the worse it gets. So in this new containerized environment that we lived in, we live in, you have to build models that are sturdy, right? They, and those are usually not the most accurate models. But they are the most consistent because they're going to be running containers and they're going to be run so many, so many more times than they have been in the past, right? Anybody can they usually spin up a Docker or or um, a containerized environment. Sorry, not to promote one thing over another. A containerized environment, and it just runs and runs and runs and runs and runs way more than you ever thought it would. So you, the way that you actually, um, the way that you actually build out the model also very much matters, right? I've begun like in the last year looking at, you know, parallelization and basically how to move, um, how to run 
models in parallel across all these different all these different locations. And then in some other cases, for like very large data sets, how to split up a model, how to split literally split it up over many different servers and locations um, to make predictions. I never thought in a million years I would ever learn anything like that. I'm just a lowly data scientist. What do I care about how a model is actually run to make a prediction and how it's actually built up? I've had to learn that. And I think we that's like that is definitely the future of, of our world. ML ops, as they call it, that is that is what we're going to have be spending our time doing in the very near future. So what I've spent a lot of my time at work recently is doing ML ops type of stuff. Um, the last several months, getting that stuff right, uh, it's a very interesting aspect of it, and one that you don't really get any exposure to unless you actually deploy a model into production, and you don't get to really deploy models into production. I mean, you might be able to when you're an up-and-coming data scientist out of like some Flask API in a Jupyter notebook or whatever, um, a Pi file, whatever, right? But you don't have to worry about the business impact of it. You don't have to worry about data coming in or data changing or anything like that. So it's definitely something I think people should read up on. Yeah, next little point there, nobody cares about your model, right? <laughs> like, no. Most up-and-coming data scientists they tend to focus primarily on the hard technical skills and they think that that is what is going to separate them from the rest of the crowd. What would you say are some soft skills that candidates are missing that are really going to separate them from their competition? Yeah, Um, that's a very good question. And I think as a data scientist, we've all gone through that phase where you were like, I'm going to be the greatest data scientist in the world. I'm going to read all the books. I'm going to quote out all the all the um, publications and all the studies. I'm going to write my own code. I'm going to make my own packets. I'm going to be the best. You've all been there. Um, that is nice and all well and good. If we lived in a world that was like this, if we lived in a world where it was just you in a vacuum building models, that would be awesome. But we do not live in a world. <laughs> Like that, we live in a world where you have to work with people, right, in order to help you achieve your goal of being the world's greatest data scientist or building a product that people really love or building something that's enduring. You have to work with people, period, and end of story. Um, so there are a variety of soft skills that actually lend to the working with people thing. The ability to effectively communicate with somebody <laughs> is a great skill to have not only at work, but also in life. I watch, you know, I manage a very tiny team of data scientists, right? And I watch people try and communicate with our team. I just watch them communicate with our team. And um, I watch people communicate with each other. I watch people communicate within my team. And I spend a lot of my day watching people miscommunicate, all like a good chunk of my day, right? Um, The ability to effectively convey what you're saying to somebody else, it saves time. Reduces friction. It's a wonderful thing to draw people in and enroll them in what you're up to. The second thing, you know, the soft skill, I really don't know how to explain it, but as much as take as much interest in being the world's greatest data scientist as you do in the other person. So imagine if you're going on an interview, you want to tell them all the cool stuff you've done, you want to show them your GitHub, you know, you want to be like, I interviewed this and that and the other. And you have no interest at all in the other person, the person sitting across from you. No interest. Right? I can't tell you how many times I sat and interviewed people who um, didn't ask, didn't have any questions for me at the end of the interview. Like, weren't even interested <laughs> in um, in the actual job. 
feel more interested in displaying their skills. We've all been there. We've all done that. But you actually have to take a genuine interest in your coworkers, an interest in your colleagues, an interest in other people in the field, an actual interest that you're able to build out your skills, your portfolios, and create opportunities for yourself. The last soft skill um, that I'm going to talk about is this. So I come from politics, right? Um, And I'm actually an introvert, which is a hard thing to be in politics. Very difficult. Uh, and I'm not even like a regular introvert, an extreme introvert. Right? I'm going to need a nap after this interview, for real. Just looking at your face on the screen, just being your beautiful face, your beautiful face on the screen, but looking at your face, but interacting with people is draining for me, right? For other people get energized, but I'm not, I'm not that. So I've had to learn over the years how to be an introvert in a very extroverted world. And I was in the most extroverted world. And some techniques that I've picked up along the way, I think are very vital for people. Number one, they always say this is true. Networking is the key. Networking is the key. For any problem you have, any job that you want, anything that you need, you got to network your way to it, period, end of story. And in order to network, if especially if you're an introvert, there are a couple of things that you can do to uh, mitigate that. So it's really easy to listen to what people to listen to people when you actually have an interest in them. So reaching out to people that you think are pretty cool and just saying, hey, listen, I just want to hear about how you got to where you got to. That's a, in a very effective networking technique, right? Whenever I walk into a room, stand in one corner, and I just ask people how they got to where they are. How'd you wind up there? And then people just talk for 20 minutes straight like I did today, right? Um, but you have to network in order to, to make it happen for yourself. I think to your second point, I would call that empathy. I was trying to find, I was uh, reading Laws of Human Nature by uh, Robert Greene here, and he he was actually talking about that, taking an interest in the other person, genuine interest in the other person that's essentially just a form of of empathy, and that goes such a long way. And I mean, I'm actually super, super introverted myself. Um, Like this is the same way for me. Like I get drained after interviews. Like, you know, like this is 11th day of the month and I've done, I've done pretty much one interview every day this week, plus the office hours I do as part of my mentorship platform, uh, Data Science Dream Job, where, where I have you know anywhere from five to 10 data scientists on a Zoom call like this, just asking questions and questions, and it gets so, so draining. So I definitely I can appreciate that, that introvert. There's got to be a name for it, like the introvert burnout or something like that. I don't know, but... We should coin a term for it because people need to understand. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. <laughs> yes. So w- what tips can you share for a data scientist who might find themselves having to present to a non-technical audience or maybe even like a room full of executives? Well, you know, I um, just like you, I literally, I, I talk to people every day of the week about, about this. The tip is this, number one, practice. Number two, practice. Um, number three, practice. I am just going to emphasize the, to practice what your, your talk before you actually give it. I cannot tell you how many presentations I have sat through where I'm like, oh my gosh, this person wrote the best PowerPoint ever. And now they're just reading it to me. That is an indication that they didn't practice. Or if they get a question from the audience or, or some, something goes off a little bit, they're totally thrown off because they're not practiced. What, what usually happens is data scientists love to talk about their models and their findings and their scores and their data and how they got the data and how they munched it, all that stuff, and nobody cares. <laughs> nobody cares. People care about the outcome. So the tip number, tip number four, because again, the first three is practice, right? 
Number four is to speak always from the outcome. Always be answering the question of how you met or didn't meet the goal. Always. Every slide that you make, every visualization that you present has to be, is this showing that I'm meeting the goal with my model? Is it showing that I'm not meeting the goal? And why? That's it. That is the only, that is all. If you stick to simply talking about how you're meeting or not meeting the goal, this is a step that I took to, to get there. That's it. Um, you can't go wrong. So practice, 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 goal. Exactly. Yeah. Like focus on the outcome and then tie it back to them. So kind of like the empathy again, but like, all right, here's the outcome and here's how it affects you. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that's an excellent framework. Thank you for sharing that. I was wondering if you could share some advice or insight with people who are breaking into the field, they see these job postings and some of them, they look like they just want the abilities of an entire team wrapped up into one person. Yeah. And then they just, they get scared to even apply yeah. as if, as if somebody is like going to like knock on the door, like the application police and say, <laughs> you cannot apply for this job. You're under arrest. Can you share some tips? Sure. So or I, talk about this, I talk about this with women, um, women data scientists. And aspiring women data scientists a lot. Um, because, you know, studies show that um, women in general will not apply for a job unless they have 80% of the job requirements. Uh, and men is in the 20s to the 40s, right? So um, uh, women applicants have the attitude that I have to know before I um, apply. And um, the male applicants have the attitude that I can pick it up along the way. I am confident in my ability to learn, right? Huge difference, right? Huge difference. Um, so I'll say, so that's one thing. So another thing is this. If you ever see a job that has everything in the kitchen sink, they want a person who does data engineering and uh, data analysis with the presentations and data science with, and machine learning with the prediction um, and, I don't know, NLP and whatever, everything wrapped up in one. You know a couple of things about this place. You can see it as an opportunity or you can see it as um, a place where you don't want to work. So it's an opportunity because uh, the folks that are writing this job description obviously don't know that you don't normally have all those skills in one person. And that can be an opportunity um, because they may not know what, exactly what they want. Right. So it's a good thing. It's a good thing. You can go in an interview and say, hey, I am what you need. Um, or you can be like, oh, this place, they don't know. They actually don't know what they want. And they might spend a lot of time wasting your time. Right? You might want to avoid them. Two ways of looking at it. Um, you see a lot of jobs that require, I, lo I, like, I love to see this. You see something like, you need 15 years of data science experience, you need a PhD, and um, some kind of certification. And, you know, data science hasn't been around for 15 years, right? So <laughs> I'm always like, okay, uh, my advice to everyone is if you feel that you have the skill set to do the core of the job, and if you feel that you can learn the rest, apply, right? Just apply anyway. I can't tell you how many jobs that I have gotten offers for that require, I don't have a PhD, that, re, that said that they required PhDs. A lot of what data science comes down to is, do you have the base skills, but also do you fit into the company, into the vision that they have? You fit the vision of the person that fits the role. A lot of things, you know, companies say you have to have a master's and you have to have this and you have to have that and the other. But often I have found that you just have to have either a strong desire, definitely a great presentation of your skills, um, and the will to learn more. So just apply anyway. No one's going to laugh you. <laughs> no one's going to laugh at you or anything like that. 
Right? You know, I work at Booz Allen, and there are people there that have multiple PhDs. There are some people that don't have a degree at all. There are some people that have been um, that come. A lot of people come from other industries, and they're just like their career changer. A lot of people have been doing this since it was called just plain statistician, right? Um, just apply anyway. If it strikes your fancy, it's a place where you want to work. Apply anyway, no matter what. It can't hurt. I used to be a just plain statistician, and then I became sexy. Yes. I used to be a plain statistician. <laughs> so uh, that was really good advice. Thank you so much for sharing that. I was wondering if you can speak to your experience being a woman in data, a woman in STEM, and if you have any advice or words of encouragement for our, uh, women in our audience uh, who are trying to break into the, into the data world or who might be facing some challenges in their career. Okay. Well, it's not easy. It's just not, it's like, it's just not easy. Not easy to be a woman in any kind of STEM field. It's definitely not easy to be a woman in data science. I think when I did a, did the survey a couple of years ago, data science had the lowest ratio of women. I don't know where it is now. I think, I feel like it's a lot, it's a lot more. I think it's gotten really, it's really improved in the last two years, like really improved, um, which is good. Um, in a field that's dominated by one gender over another, the minority gender is always going to have difficulties. My advice to women is always, number one, you have options. So right now, data science is super hot. It's not going to be hot for long, you know, much longer. But right now, it's super hot, right? You can go and work anywhere. You can go and work anywhere in any industry, in actually any part of the world that has the internet consistently. Seriously, you have options. You do not have to stay in a bad situation. That is one of the best things about data science. You can, I can I can pick up tomorrow and go work somewhere else, right? Um, number two is the leadership has to be committed to culture change. And it's actually not a hard sell to get leaders committed to culture change. So everybody knows this. Every, every executive knows this. That the more diverse your team, the more gender balanced your organization is, the more money you make, right? Literally, the more money you make. The thing just came out a couple of days ago that companies that are run by women make a significantly more amount of money than companies that are run by men. Everybody knows that it's actually a winning proposition to have more women in the field. And, and if you have a gender imbalance, to create an environment that's conducive to collaborative work. It's not a hard sell. And I would say nowadays, executives, you know, people who are running these companies are all ears, right? All ears. I can't tell you how many initiatives there are out there to have more women come into data science and stay into data science, right? So, so that's one thing. Um, and I think because data scientists know this to be true, it really is like people really are trying to get more women in the field and um, keep women in the field. Uh, the other thing is, you know, I always have this thing about, you know, people, I mean, I talk about fairness and such. Um, I always talk about, you know, people always feel like they don't, they can't make a difference where they are. But when it comes to like, when it comes to this or creating more fair algorithms, you can start exactly where you are, right? You can, um, you don't have to set the world on fire, but you can advocate. If you are a man, you can advocate for your women colleagues. If you are in a hiring position, you can advocate to hire more, more women legally, right? You can do that. Um, you can advocate to not use applicant tracking systems that bounce women out of of um, hiring more at higher rates than men. You can do it manually, right? You can make a difference right where you are. Um, everybody wins, right? Everybody wins in this scenario. Thank you so much. I absolutely love that perspective. And I know that the women in our audience are really going to feel empowered by that. So thank you so much for, for sharing that. So I was wondering what the STEM community can do 
what the data community can do to foster the inclusion of people of color, Black Americans in particular, into our field? Oh, I sigh because, you know, the greater, the, the, the most stark examples of unfairness, right? The, the, the algorithms that we build, the models that we make, the starkest representation of how unfairness unfolds and really negatively impacts people's lives comes down to gender and race, and, and most recently, um, race stuff. So here you have an industry that perpetuates, I shouldn't say, yeah, pup, and I'm going to say faucet, but perpetuates unfairness, right? Especially among people of color. And then at the same time, making really concerted efforts to bring in people of color. But there's a mismatch, right? <laughs> there's a mismatch. So to actually bring in more people of color into the industry, you just have to hire people, just have to hire them. That is all. It's not like rocket science or anything like that. Just hire people. When you know people appear from you, just, just, just hire them, right? I can't tell you how many people I, I have worked with over the years, not necessarily now, but I've worked with over the years. Uh, folks were just, they were not hired for, um, they, were, they were hired for their potential, right? Um, and I do hope that people of color get the same benefit of the doubt. Because often what you find in the person of color is that they, that they feel and they have to present as being extraordinary. And extraordinary people are few and far between, right? And, um, you know, just hire, just hire people. I always talk to recruiting folks about, you know, hiring more people. And they often say this to me. And a big CEO in the Silicon Valley company said this. And then another CEO at a bank said this recently. Like, oh, you know, I just, the pool of people of color is small. Like, we can't find them. Just can't find them. Well, here's the thing. I'm a, I'm a black woman. I don't know if you guys can see me or not. I'm a black woman, right? And uh, growing up, I had no idea about so many things. Um, and I went to, you know, I went to a decent school, you know, right? I had no idea about so many things. And the reason I didn't know is because as a person of color, I'm excluded from so many things. I had no idea about internships. Didn't know. Just didn't know. Nobody ever told me, right? Um so you're not, you don't even know about places where you could apply to work. You don't even know about schools that you can apply to go to. You just don't know. You're completely cut off from access to information, like totally cut off. So if you want to hire more people of color, they may not even know, right, that they are eligible for these jobs. You have to go to them, which is not hard. There are a ton of HBCUs, right? Um, there are predominantly white institutions that have very large populations of people of color that go to these schools. Just go to them and your problem is solved, right? There are so many organizations, you know, there's so many meetup groups that are race or gender based, period, right? Go to them, right? So that you can um, diversify the people that work in your job and then just hire them. That's it. It takes slightly more effort than um, than throngs of the same type of person coming to you because they already know that you're resisting, they already know the process and stuff, they have the inside track. But a lot of people of color don't know. That's all. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that, CN. So let's do our last formal question before we jump into a random round. Okay. It is 100 years in the future. It is the year 2120. What do you want to be remembered for? Oh, my slick dance moves. <laughs> Uh, where, where where can we where can we see your slick dance movie? <laughs> you actually cannot. <laughs> yeah, you gotta, you gotta pay good money to see that. All right, just 
I want to be known for my slick dance move. I also want to be known for creating creating algorithms that create, that perpetuate, that inspire fairness, right? That inspire healthy behaviors in people. I want to be known for that. Jump into a quick random round here, starting with the first question. When do you think the first video to hit 1 trillion views on YouTube will be, and what will it be about? I think it's going to be in the next two years, and I think it's going to uh, either involve Donald Trump, or I think it's going to be involved involve some kind of baby dancing. It might involve a cat. My son, he is six months old right now. If you are listening to this in two years, you better be that baby dancing. <laughs> yes. What would you do if you're the last person on earth? Oh, man, that's a good question. If you're the last person on earth, I think I'll figure out how to like build a boat. Just explore the world on my own. All right. Yeah. I like that. If you were to write a fiction novel, what would it be about and what would you call it? Oh, I would write a fiction novel about the hijinks of political, presidential political campaigns. Nothing but hijinks. And um, I would call it, hmm, I don't know what I would call it. I would the call hijinks. It, I call it the campaign of kindness. Ah, like that. What are you currently reading? Um, I'm calling, reading a book um, called... Forget a mentor, get a sponsor. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sylvia Ann Hewitt. Hewitt? Yes, yeah, yes. yeah. I'm reading that yeah. right now. My job sent it to us. And I'm like, wow, this is a really cool book. Yeah, it is. It's a good book. I really enjoyed that. What song do you have on repeat? song that I have on repeat is um, a wonderful song by an artist named Juvenile. It's called Back That Thing Up. <laughs> taking, it, taking it back. I just don't know why. I don't know why I behave this way. I was raised better than this. I apologize to my parents. I do. But I really love that song. Man, I was in 11th grade and that song came out. Maybe even younger than that. Man. I was young. I was young. Wow. That's, I mean, half the audience listening probably wasn't even born when that song Correct. came out. Yep. That is true. It's a great song, you guys. It is quite a philosophical piece. <laughs> it is. Let's open up the random question generator. <laughs> All right, here we go. First question out of the random question generator. What is one of your favorite smells? Lavender. Pet peeves? Um, people who are attention-sucking people. I don't know how to explain it. Narcissist. Narcissist. What story does your family always tell about you? Oh, the time I fell down a manhole. What? Yes, I fell down a manhole. I was, I was walking in Trinidad. I was six years old, and it was flooding. It floods on the yearly basis. So, they were, you know, can't really see the actual grounds. I'm just minding my business walking home from school, and I fell down a manhole. Uh, didn't know how to swim. Almost drowned and everything. People think that's funny, you know, to be covered in sewage water. They think that's hilarious. But then... You know, I didn't drown because an angel, a, 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 a white person came from the sky and pulled me out. And when I say white person came from the sky, there was a telephone worker on a pole and he saw me fall down. He was albino and he came and he pulled me out, saved my life. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That is yeah. crazy. It is crazy. Who are some of your heroes? Oh, Rihanna is my, my, my current hero. Um, person who's listening to my adversity is now a billionaire. Makes my favorite makeup that matches my skin tone. It's a dark-skinned black woman. It's huge. Um, and makes really good um, products. Just really does. And also very good news. 
Another one of my heroes, obviously, is my mom. My mom, who immigrated to not one, but two places from her very tiny island, from her very poor village. She's a gangster. She's a rock star. She's amazing. And my dad, he's a hero, too. He came from one of the poorest countries in the world, you know, and now he's like this renowned professor person. My parents, they're pretty cool peeps. That's awesome. That is awesome. We'll do the last random question here. When was the last time you changed your opinion about something major? Okay, so this happened to me in the last week, now that you know, but during the election. So with the election, you know, all the predictions were a landslide. And um, I thought to myself, well, I don't think it's going to be a landslide, but I do think it's going to be over on Tuesday. Yeah, how can people connect with you and where can they find you online? You can find me on LinkedIn. I'm C.N. Lewis. Uh, LinkedIn slash all, A-L-L-S-I-A-N, all C.N. That's where I am. You can find me on Twitter at all C.N. You can find me on Instagram at all C.N. You can find me on Facebook, C.N. Lewis. There's one of me. I'll definitely include all those links into the show notes. C.N., thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come on to the show today. I really, really appreciate having you here. Thank you for having me. This was totally fun. 